So this morning is May 6th. It is Sunday morning, 2007. It's a Sunday morning after the men's retreat, and I think the men are stoked. I'm excited about that. Our message this morning is called War. The First War, actually, because we've got other messages called War online. First War. Anybody know the first war is mentioned in the Bible? Trick question. <laughs> it's in Genesis. How about that? Before we turn to Genesis, though, turn with me to Romans 14. I want to insert a principle into your mind. That's right. You've been reading Genesis, huh? That's a good girl. Get to Romans 14. I want to read you something. I just want to give you a thought to dwell on, and then we're going to cover the first war and a topic called himself. Okay? Tell me when you're in Romans 14. There. The right side of the room is there. The left side. This is the goats, right? No. But where are you? Are you 14? Romans 14. You are there. Lindy is there. The pregnant lady outran all of you. How does this happen? All right. In Romans 14, this seventh verse is just something that I want you to begin to contemplate on. Everything that I'm going to talk to you today about deals with this verse. For none of us lives to himself alone. And none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Paul was consumed with a vision that told him that he would suffer, that told him he would take the gospel to Gentiles, he would take it to Jews. He was consumed with this. And he considered his whole life as belonging to the Lord and expected everybody else to take that same attitude. With that in mind, turn with me back to Genesis and we're going to get into our word. We're going to be in the 14th chapter of Genesis. Oh yeah, somebody, the left side of the room starting to represent. Okay, there are going to be an awful lot of names in here that are hard to pronounce. Okay, that's just because this is an Eastern book and we're Western people and these names are not uh, American names. It's a good thing to remember every now and then that Jesus was not an American. Y'all in 14, starting in verse 1. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Lemor, king of Eliam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. She member, he's from uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> oops. King of Zeboam and the king, the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these later kings joined forces in the valley of Sedim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedor Lamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. What we have is we have five kings who live in the area of the valley of Sedim. These kings are Bera, Bersha, Shanab, Shemember, and Bela. And they are living in subject. They're living underneath the rule of four kings. Amraphel, Arioch, Kedor, Lamor, and Tidal. Those kings are all from the area of Babylonia. Long, long ways away. And they don't like it. So they begin to rebel. In the fourteenth year, Kedor, Lamor, and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites and Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzites and Ham, the Emites and Shava, 
uh, Kiriatham and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. So far, we're reading just like it was Greek, huh? I promise it'll start to make sense. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, and as well as the Amorites who were living in Ezon Tamar. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim. Y'all with me? Against Kedor Lamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariah, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Did you hear the summary? Four kings, four on five. Win this. Very humbling experience, Matthew and I. We played basketball on nine foot goals with two of the young men in the church. And if you removed all running from the game, we would have dominated. <laughs> but the problem is the game involves some running. And I negotiated with my body for more oxygen, but my lungs did not uh, did not come through. When you line up with five kings against four, five should win without any problem, shouldn't they? In fact, would you say that if five kingdoms came together, there'd probably be lots of people, maybe numbering in the thousands? Wouldn't you guess that? How about four kingdoms? If there's four kingdoms together, wouldn't you say that the people would probably number in the thousands? Well, something happens. They choose as a battleground a particular place, the Valley of Sidim. Now, he keeps referring to it as the Valley of Sidim because it's later going to be known as something else, and you see that in parentheses, the Salt Sea. What a unique area this is. So first we've got four and five, and then we've got the Valley of Sidim. Let's keep reading and see what happens here. Now, the Valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell in them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. What an interesting story. Why all of the detail? It's the very first war mentioned in the Bible. And by our standards, this is probably more like a small regional conflict. But in the day, considering the population on the earth and where most of it was centered, this is a major international conflict. It goes through great detail to tell you where they were from, the directions they approached, where they fought, all of those things, because it was a story known to the people. And it confirms the details there. The Bible always goes to make sure that it's verifiable. We don't have a blind faith. We have a trust but verify system. God asks you to trust Him, and then He shows you what to verify what He said is true. The place they chose for battle is Sidim. This is where the present-day Dead Sea is located. Y'all heard the term Dead Sea? It's on that map over there on the, on the right. The word Dead Sea never appears in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? In fact, it doesn't appear in the original language, right? Wouldn't you expect that if we call it Dead Sea, when you translate it back into Hebrew, you would have a word for dead and another word for sea? It is not there. It is always called the Salt Sea. Most of the time in the Bible, what is salt indicative of? Life, preservative, eternal, something very good, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth? 
Well, he wasn't calling you something dead, was he? Salt was a seasoning, something that was good, something that you could add to french fries and make them great, right? But if you pile so much salt on your french fries, let's say, oh, I don't know, six or seven times the amount you normally would, suddenly that is not good to eat, is it? The place they chose is where the Dead Sea is. It's salinity ratio. How much salt there is to the water is 24.6%. It is seven times the ocean. swam in it twice. Actually, you on it. Not because it's like a beached whale, but because it actually gets thicker. It's thicker than everywhere else in the world. And there's a reason for this. Rivers pour into it, the biggest of which is the Jordan. Every 24 hours, now hear me, not gallons I'm talking about, 6,000 tons of water pour into this. And yet it doesn't change. How is that possible? How can we have 6,000 tons of water pouring in every 24 hours and it's not getting full? Absolutely. It is also the lowest place on the planet Earth. It's about 1,300 feet below sea level, and then, imagine you're starting 1,300 feet in the hole, then it goes another 1,300 feet in the ground. What happens is all of this water is constantly pouring into it and constantly pouring into it. But there is no outlet, and so it is stagnant, and it dies. And as things begin to evaporate, all that's left is those minerals. And so it has far more good things in it than it was ever intended to because they were meant for other things. And it's caused death. Christians, we don't live lives that are supposed to be centered around ourselves. And if what you want is a deposit for all of the good teaching in the world, everything that you can soak up, all the prophecy, all of the feel-good stuff in the kingdom, but you're not learning to pour it out, that which was meant to be life for you becomes death. And the reason that it does is you think that by possessing this knowledge of everything, you have saved yourself. When the only reason God blesses anybody is so that they might be a blessing to someone else. These kings, five took on four foreign kings. But the place that they chose for battle is representative of the most selfish place on earth. Why do we have war? Because men are selfish. We have pride and sinful natures. Who is right in this and who is wrong? Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? I want to tell you the truth. You study their character, all of them were bad. There's not a king in here that is a good king. They are all fighting and they are fighting for wrong reasons in the place that symbolizes the most selfish of all places on earth. A place that takes and never gives. Now the five local kings that should have foreign kings. What happened to them? How embarrassing is this? When you are in a sporting event, you're supposed to have uh, a home field, and that's considered a home field advantage. These guys, the home field advantage, they outnumbered their foreign enemy, right? And they had the home turf to work with. And what happened? They fell in their carpets. How sad is that? And yet something about reading that pulled at my this morning because I realized that Eric's biggest enemy is too much Eric. Many times in my life I have set out to do something that I thought was good, but there was too much Eric in it. And I found myself bogged down. In... Have you never read the 
Psalm 40 says, You have saved me from the miry clay. David knew what this was like. The pits of your own making that have to do with your selfish pride. Thinking too much this kingdom and this gospel and everything else was given to you for your benefit. How can I be blessed? I mean, Lord, you can't turn on the TV without hearing how God wants you rich. I can tell you that is a lie. It's a lie. Very few of you would handle it well. Very few. You know how I know that? Because I watch how you handle what you have now. Boy, doesn't your pride always tell you that if you had you would do better with it? What you have. Start with what you have and let's see how that works. I thought it was interesting one of our speakers, who I chose because I knew he would be honest, said, I set out in ministry to be the Zathanoth Panea, the Savior. Said, and God kept knocking me down and knocking me down and knocking me down. And in every area I went into, I went into it thinking, okay, this is good. I'll be humble. But inwardly, I saw myself as the Savior of this place. And he said, and God knocked, knocked me down until all I had was my own family. What a great place to start. Ministry always flows from the home. In this church, we examine what you do in your own home before we let you do anything in this church. And I want to tell you a secret. I chose the men that spoke at the men's retreat because they're servants, not because they're trained speakers. Did y'all notice that Wade Sutherland got up and everybody every time load the dishes from the table? Did y'all notice that? He's the guest speaker. He flew in from afar. To some people, this would be a position of prestige. He beat everybody every time to servanthood. Do you think he did that so people would see it? He did it because it's who he is. And that's what makes him useful in the kingdom. I want to talk to you today about lies in the wrong place at the wrong time. Being in the most selfish place on earth, by the way, that 1,300 feet below sea level, it's really hard to measure. You know why? It's still sinking. This is the place where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and He drove it down with such force that it is still sinking. It represents the judgment that will come upon the world. But Lot is an interesting guy. He gets carried off from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, 2 Peter is a place you ought to turn. Keep your finger in Genesis, and we're going to turn to 2 Peter. Y'all still awake? You still with me? I know, I've read lots of weird king's names and places in the Scripture you're not used to. But that's how you get used to them, isn't it? 2 Peter 4. 2 Peter 4. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's Peter 4. Peter 4. Hmm. Still not right. Keeping you on your toes. Second Peter 2, 4. How about that? <coughs> For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, this whole place where these kings are fighting would later become an example to the ungodly of what happens. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, 
who was distressed by the filthy, filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Hmm. This is especially true for those that follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Who's it especially true for? Those who follow corrupt desires of their sinful nature. Well, what is Lot, a righteous man, doing in such an ungodly place? The place where there's the first war, the place that is synonymous with selfishness, the place where men get bogged down in the most earthy substance there is, tar, and lose their lives. What is Lot even doing there? How did that happen? How is it that righteous men get involved in things that they shouldn't be involved in? Well, maybe we better turn back to Genesis. Let's start in Genesis 13. When you want to know something about the Scripture, you need to read what's after it. You need to put it into context. This book is a letter from God to you to teach you how to draw near to God. It was never meant to be a book of law that you simply turn to one page, grab a precept or a point, and then turn to another page and use those points to prove your case. This was never that way. It's a book of vivid imagery. Powerful, powerful words were chosen not for their perceptions, but to convey an image to you so that somewhere in your spirit the imprint of God would recognize that picture and you would begin to long for it. You would learn to avoid things and learn to embrace others. How simple is it when the what is evil and cling to what is good? But how often do we not actually hate what is evil? So much of us longs for it. Oh, you don't do it publicly. But in the privacy of your home, in the privacy of your car, when the telemarketer calls and you are all alone and think nobody can hear, how much do you really hate what is evil? Saints, this morning I want to stir up a feeling in us that avoids being righteous men who have been enticed into situations we shouldn't be in. Because there's a price to pay. The fact that God rescues you does not mean that you're delivered from all of the uh, consequences. I wish it were so. After I had gotten saved, I spent a few years wishing God had changed my name because I still ran into people in every local hangout that wanted to fight, <laughs> that wanted to do things that I was no longer involved in. And the Word required me to humble myself. In fact, as word of this got out because of a reputation that I had had in the world, people took great advantage of this. Oh, look. You can slap this guy in the face now and he won't do anything. And all of that was for the destruction of Eric's pride so that God could begin to use me. Have you ever wondered why every prophet, every awesome man of God, there's stories of great failure in their life? The only way that God uses you is when you've been reduced to ashes so that He can rebuild you. Otherwise, there's too much you in it. Are you all in Genesis 13? Yes. If you're taking notes on the note of the tar pit, read Psalm 40, Psalm 103, and 2 Samuel 23. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 23? We have a guy named Eleazar whose hand froze to the sword. We have a guy named Joshua who stood in the council of God, saw no task is impossible. 
We had another guy named Shama that defended a field of lentils, defended the food source for God's people. Those were the three mighty men, and I have preached about them and talked about them so that hopefully they're familiar to you. There was one that wasn't included in the three, though. You need to look him up. He was David's bodyguard. He was one of the 30, but not in the three. On a snowy day, he descended into a pit with a lion and killed it with his hands. In Christianity, there are those that fall in the pits of their own making and cry that they're hurt, they're wounded, and it's other people's fault that I have fallen into this tar. And then there are those that find themselves in it but decide to put to death the enemy in it and climb out. Saints, God is looking for men that will go ahead and go into that snowy pit, kill the lion so that you can walk on with the king. Those pits are of your own making. They're your pride. And you think pride is needing to be great. Pride is caring more about you getting home first than your brothers, being the very first one to leave while everybody's unloading. Pride is racing to be in the front of the line without regard to the men that are already in line. Pride is putting yourself before others in every situation. This has to die. You have to be men and women who will go down into that pit and kill that lion. And I want to tell you the truth. It's in all of you. It's in me. And it is a daily battle. Go back in Genesis 13. By the way, when we're looking for men and women to ally ourselves with, especially in ministry, we look for men and women who practice this in the small things. Because I know if Wade Sutherland cleans the tables when nobody's looking, I can put him in front of the whole world and he still won't be prideful. Integrity is what you do when nobody is noticing. See, I can preach like this and the first thing that happens is somebody goes to take out the trash in my house, right? But they want to make sure I saw him take out the trash. That's just another lion in another pit that you've fallen into. And you in Genesis 13? So for him... That bodyguard of David that killed the lion in the snowy pit, he killed an Egyptian next with a club, although the Egyptian had a spear. We're all out of Egypt, always, because it's another place that symbolizes the world. Abraham is leaving Egypt uh, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and in gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar to the Lord. There Abraham called on the name Yahweh. I'm going to reflect for a second on Abraham's character as something that we should all imitate. Abraham had the character that built altars everywhere and said, this will be Bethel. Beth in Hebrew means house. El means God. Everywhere Abraham went, he said, I can feel the presence, the significance, the glory, Hebrew, God, of God in this place, and he considered it God's house. Because he considered God's house everywhere he went, he acted like God was with him everywhere he went. It governed his actions. It drove him. It was his purpose. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions 
pains were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in have a problem. Abraham has gone where God told him to go, when God said to be there. And so what did he find? Provision everywhere. And he had a tag along with him. Somebody who God didn't necessarily say go, but I'm not saying it wasn't God's will. He just saw this man of God and followed him in his vision. And the result was he's living in tremendous blessing because of the man of God's godly character. But quarreling begins to break out. It's Abraham's vision. It's Abraham who's going. It's Abraham who owns everything, but Lot's been blessed as well, and quarreling breaks out. Saints, what would be the right thing for Lot to do? Hmm. Well, Abraham's the first to speak. And uh, this air conditioner will quit turning my pages. He says, Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herd and mine, for we are brothers. What an interesting statement. We are brothers. They're not brothers. Did you read that when we started, it said Lot was Abraham's nephew? In a culture, if you were ordaining authority, if you were thinking about who outranked who, would the nephew outrank the uncle? Abraham had the kind of heart that trusted God so much he did not consider equality with people something that he had to grasp. He didn't need to prove he was just as good as anybody else. He didn't need to compete with anybody. In fact, he esteemed everybody else better than himself. He looked at his nephew and considered him an equal and said, Brother, isn't all of this ours? You choose which way you want to go and I'll choose the other one. Is that a selfless act? Yeah. Do you think that that's the normal part of our nature? Isn't there something in you that cries out, but that's not right! Lot should have had to leave, not Abraham. Isn't there something in you that does that? But Abraham laid that on an altar and sacrificed it. In fact, the writers of the New Testament tell us that if anyone wants to follow Jesus, he must take up his cross and deny himself daily. This is exactly what it's talking about. You look over and you see somebody doing the dishes. And that little twinge comes, I can help them. I could play the Xbox. Well, is anybody looking? No? Let's go play the Xbox. See, what you do in these small daily disciplines determines your life's outcome. One of the things Wade taught us that I liked, I just thought it was awesome. He said, quit waiting for giant, big, secret revelations from God. All truth starts in daily disciplines. And it does. It does. I want our church to set the right examples now. Now, I noticed something. It's contagious. What Wade did on the first day, other people were doing on the second. And by the third, lots of people were doing it. And truthfully, the ones that weren't, weren't only because they got there late and didn't see what was happening. So they didn't get a chance to learn by example. find the same problem with church attendance, friends. I just want to tell you that now. Some of the church grows and does very good, and the ones that don't grow as fast just usually weren't there to hear the message. So the weak get weaker and the strong get stronger. But it ought not be this way because you all have the same opportunity. So Abraham lays aside his pride, calls this man brother, and says, Is not the whole land before you? Let us part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Think about this. Is Abraham at total peace? 
Of course. He's at total peace. He believes that God is with him no matter where he goes. He's been naming places the house of God. Does Abraham esteem others higher than himself? His actions prove that he does. Is Abraham faith in what he does? Yeah, he has so much trust in God, he doesn't really care which direction he goes. He believes that his God is going to take care of him. I want you to understand that selfishness at its very nature is anti-faith. What it says is, I don't believe that if I don't do this for myself, that God would do it. I don't trust God enough to look after me. I will look to my own interest first. That's what selfishness is. In fact, it is the spirit of the Antichrist. And I will show you that in a minute. The spirit of the Antichrist. We have a choice according to Ephesians 2. We can have the spirit of the world influencing us, or we can have the Spirit of God influencing us. Galatians lists the fruit that they both produce. But in their heart, one causes you to put others before yourself, and the other causes you to put yourself before everybody else. Some of you have positions of influence given by God. I know, I'm one of those men. If you put me in a room full of a hundred people, and none of us know each other, and there is any problem of any kind, some large percentage of those people will turn to me. I didn't do that. That's not something I'm proud of. In fact, at times in my life, it's been something I hid from. It's something that God did. How much greater responsibility do you think then that I have to enact the Word of God? See, if you have a position of influence with people, you need to make sure that you're doing it right. Saying the right things will not work. It's doing them. If you feel like you're called to be a leader, let that shine forth by serving. You remember that the apostles argued as to who was greatest? And what did Jesus do? Took a towel and scrubbed their feet to show them the extent of His love for them. And then said, you're blessed if you go and do these things. How many feet have you washed this week? See, I'll teach you about eschatology. I will teach you about Hebraic roots. And I'll teach you things that you won't hear in any other church. Right? I mean, there are some things that you can run that at parties with your friends, it'll surprise them. And all it is puff you up and make you somebody God can't use. But if you begin to enact and use that knowledge, if you use that information for a transformation in your life, so that you can go and do what other people don't do, so that you can love the ones no one else will love, so that you can defend the widow and the orphan and feed those who are hungry, then you're children of God. That's what the Word teaches. All right, this is 13, right? Right. If you see an area where you have a shortcoming here, it's not something to drop your head about. not something to stare at the ground about and be sad about. Instead, you should say, Bless you, O Lord, for revealing a way I can yet become more like you. That is the right response to correction. You ready? Yeah. Lot looked up. Oh, by the way, James 2.23 says, Abraham was a friend of God wonder why. Because he acted like God. He had God's character, God's nature. How do you know it? It was displayed in his actions. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. 
and set out towards the east. Lot chose for himself. Hmm. Is selfishness something that you would ascribe to God? In fact, the heart of our gospel is that He gave Himself for us. He sacrificed Himself for us. So what does it mean when we say we are Christians? It means we will sacrifice ourselves for other people. When I was in Israel with this one little group of uh, people of Armenian descent, but they were, they were pagan Druids. Not Druids. They're called Druze, and there's a difference. Druids worshipped uh, Baal. Druze didn't. D-R-E-W-S. And the Israeli soldiers loved them. And I couldn't figure out why. Because, you know, Israeli soldiers are not real hip on anybody that's not understand. These guys, they believe that when you die, nothing happens. You just cease to exist. And they make the best soldiers. We put them on the front line. Well, we don't believe nothing happens when we die. But we believe that if you live in a way that is pleasing to God, your eternity will be an extension of that. We should have no fear of death. And we proclaim that in everything that we do. A hope in the resurrection. And yet if we don't die daily to our own desires and take up God's, you won't participate in the resurrection that is to come. At least not in a good way. Why do we always think we will do on game day what we didn't do in practice? Why is that? But if I was in the game, it would have... No, I know I don't work hard in practice. But if I had been in if Coach had just seen what I can do. But I don't do it in practice. This whole church is based on the idea of performing outside these walls what you've practiced in here. And saints, if you don't serve the other saints that are around you, I know you're not serving the lost people that are around you. Mm. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? It does me too. I'd rather preach about something else. I really would. I look forward to a day when I don't have to give that kind of word. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. What is it about this guy? He looks up, he sees a man that looks good. He puts Abraham out so that he can go. And it's we're sinning greatly. Do you think that happened the day he got there? Sin never works that way. Do you find out that San Francisco is full of a certain kind of the day after you get there? Or does it have a reputation that is world-renowned? How about New Orleans Mardi Gras? Are you surprised when you get there and it's, it's uh, idolatry? No, it's world-renowned. This was a center place in the ancient world. It was no mistake that the men were sinning greatly against God there. It was no mistake at all. But something enticed Lot, didn't it? He looked and saw how good it was. James 4.4 4 says that friendship with the world is warfare to God. And yet Lot was willing, though he's a righteous man, because of something that he could get for himself to live in one of the most ungodly places on the planet. Turn with me to 1 John. Leave your finger here. In 1 John 2, I want you to hear this. I want you to read it. I want you to think about it. 1 John 2. I want you, church, to know that we played a game called There that was based on me calling out scriptures of importance and people finding those scriptures. 
And Brother Adam tore them up. A Christian of about eight months, and he tore us all up. That brother loves the Word, and he's digging in it. And he's learned to use his concordance, which is a good thing. All right, y'all in First John 2? Let's start in that 15th verse. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting about what he has and does. The boasting about what he has and does. Boy, let that one weigh on you for a minute and then examine your last few conversations with people. The boasting about what he has and does comes the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the love of God lives forever. Friendship with the world is warfare towards God. Loving the world is loving something that is in a state of decay passing away. But loving what God's Word says in any and every situation, putting it first, will cause to endure forever. Corinthians 11 teaches us something. Turn there. In Corinthians 11. Judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. When Lot looked up and he saw this place that he so began to desire, aware that men were gratefully sinning there, aware that he would have to usurp his uncle's authority to get it. He'd have to put himself before everybody else. The thought was enticing that he was willing to risk his godly character. Bad lot, right? How many times in a day do we do it? Every time you put your needs before someone else's, you're showing God, I don't believe that you can meet my needs. So I'm going to do it. More than that, I don't love them more than I love myself. I'm still kind of a God to myself. Hey, but thank you, Jesus, for revealing it. We have a chance to do something about it, right? Turn with me to Psalms 1-1. In Psalms 1-1, a psalm many people learn to quote, it says, Blessed is the man who does in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and out. And it goes on and on and on. These were principles that were known to Lot because the truth of God has been evident since the beginning. The creation speaks of its glory. Every day you have a choice whether to Put yourself in the plain of Shinar, the plain of Sedim, or to put yourself by the streams of water of God. And we make that decision in our thoughts. Every day we have a choice whether or not we will fall into the tar pit of pride or whether we'll go down into it with a club and beat a lion to death so that we can walk forth in freedom. Every day we make these choices. But Lot was a righteous man. He was not the kind of man that didn't have a love for God. He was just the kind of man that was weak in his constitution, weak in his nature, a lot like us. And so God sent somebody to rescue him. 
Why do you think God let a righteous man get carried away by four kings? Because the Lord disciplines those He loves. We know this from the New Testament because all of you have read the book of Hebrews, right? Twelfth chapter, the Lord disciplines His sons. But the writer of Hebrews knew it, knew it because Proverbs 3 says, As a father disciplines a son, he delights in, so your God will discipline you. God loved Lot. He considered him righteous not because his actions showed that he was, He considered him righteous because Lot loved the Lord. But that didn't mean Lot didn't have consequences. Lot did horrible things with his daughters. Lot made horrible errors in judgment. Read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and you'll see that Lot was willing to offer his daughters to pagan men to protect his house guests. Friends, I got a daughter and I love you. but I don't love you enough to do something indecent with my daughter. In fact, I love you guys and I'm loyal to you enough that I would give my life for you, but I will not sin for you. I want you to re-examine your friendships and see if you're enabling people to be selfish and ungodly. I want you to examine your own heart based on the Word and see whether or not you're putting on the attitude of Christ. I told you that I would prove to you that the spirit of the Antichrist is a selfish spirit. Philippians 2 that I've talked about, an example of Hebrew parallelism, says each of you should have the attitude of Christ, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself in appearance as a man. And he submitted to death, even death on a cross. Every step he took down, humbling himself, him up. He said, therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee on heaven and earth should bow. The spirit and the attitude of Christ is one that continually lowers yourself to propel others up. But what is the spirit of Antichrist? It's 2 Thessalonians 2.4. says, he will oppose and exalt himself above everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's testimony himself to be God. There are two spirits you get to choose every day which one you want to yield to. Oh, I know. You speak in tongues, right? So you yield to the Spirit of God. Well, that's a start. But what are your actions doing? See, it's not okay to call on Jesus but act like the Antichrist. It's not okay. In fact, it's pretty darn confusing for those who are trying to decide out there. This is why God hates the lukewarm. That's why He wants to vomit Boy, what an ugly word. But not as ugly as puke them out, right? Because it's confusing for everybody. We get to choose every day which one we want to stand in. But praise God, the end of the story is not that Lot was carried off, is it? Turn with me to Matthew. i got just a few minutes. Let's do that. One of the things that I love about preaching is while i got you in here in the seats, I can tell you whatever I want. <laughs> might not come back, but concern. He's proven to me that I don't need butts to warm seats. I need lives that will change. Mm-hmm. And I'm well convinced that if you won't be a student of the Lord, learning and loving and growing, then we'll need your seat because He'll bring somebody else in here that will. I only got so many spaces you can park out there. I want them to be taken up by sold-out believers who would do anything, even 
the destruction of their own pride on the snowy day. Are you all in Matthew 16? Yeah, I often don't tell you until I get there. It gives me a little head start, right? In Matthew 16, starting... Hey, it's more fun to learn about Hebraic principles, isn't it? Yeah. More fun to hear about divine concepts and ancient literature. And I love to dig out those things. Those are like nuggets. I try to spread those out so that you'll come back. But I want to tell you the truth. Knowing that Josephus said that the Greek zodiac was God enthroned among the stars and the, tw- the twelve Greek community on the ground was God dwelling on earth. Knowing that, it really doesn't do much for God if you can't put to death your flesh. In fact, knowing godly principles can even make you more prideful. If you don't believe that, examine Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees and tell me it's not true. He said, you search the Scriptures thinking that by them you have eternal life. And yet, they speak of me and you refuse to come to me. But saints, we are no better. We read them, we go to church, we talk about them, we put them on our hats, on our cars, on our t-shirts. But if we don't do them, we've deceived ourselves. We're like men who have looked at ourselves in the mirror and walked away forgetting what it looked like. Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good is it if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his own soul? Lot came dangerously close. For better pasture lands, for more water, for a little easier life, almost lost his very soul. Were it not for the extraordinary mercy of God, he would have. Where do you fall on that exchange? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with the angels, and then He will reward each person according to what he believed. No. He's going to reward them according to what they have done. How about that? I tell you the truth, who are standing here will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's amazing the transfigurations next. I want you to turn to one more Matthew scripture and then I want to go back and finish up in Genesis. Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, look at verse 11. The greatest among you will be your high and exalted leader. The greatest among you will be a football coach leading the nation toward Jesus. The greatest among you will be an international man of renown. The greatest among you will be a great athlete. The greatest among you will be charming and charismatic and good-looking. The greatest among you will be your servant. How many of you woke up this day and said, Lord, how can I serve today? And then if you did, let's talk about the way that you can serve. How much you is there in it? I want to serve, Lord. I just want to do anything You want me to do, like lead worship. Be careful. I want to serve You, Lord. I want to serve You. I just want to be a great te- I mean, a teacher. I want to serve You, Lord. I'll do anything for You as long as the audience is big. Now, we're never that honest with ourselves, but examine your motives. The Proverbs tell us that God examines the motives behind your very thoughts. 
Did you know that? The motives behind your very thoughts. You want to play an instrument in church? Why? Because you think you can contribute in a way towards people being propelled into the presence of God and you're willing to give of your time in practice. You're willing to give of yourself in every way to cause that to happen or because you want to be noticed and show people what you can do. See, saints, if we don't build this right, by the time we have built something that is large, it'll stink and won't be something that God can use. But if we get it right in the small things, we won't have to worry about it when there are zeros behind the numbers in the offering plate. We won't have to worry about it when the audience is much larger. We won't have to worry about it. When you get it right in the small things, then He can add more to you. When you don't, you're a danger to Him. You understand that? Some of you have more potential than anybody that I have ever met. But you're incredibly dangerous, but not for the right reasons. Because you still don't quite get it. You still don't quite understand what moves the heart of God. You're still a little too in love with yourself. I know. I know exactly what happens. God will squash you and squash you and squash you because He loves you. And when that little greasy spot says... <laughs> I got it. I'm little. You're big. I love you. Then he begins to rebuild you. And even while I'm standing here saying that about you, God reminds me. And every day I have to look in the mirror. And what I preach needs to be true. By the way, most of the time when I get these messages, it's because the Lord's been correcting me. There's a dirty little pastor secret, isn't it? Y'all go back and look at the sermon titles. You can find out everything that I struggle with in my life. <laughs> 11 and 12. I'm sorry, 23 is 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. himself will be exalted. That Hebrew parallelism, Philippians 2, that I've taught you about so many times, is a spiritual law at work. The further you humble yourself, the higher God can exalt you. But the higher you exalt yourself, the more He has to humble you. So much so that you could be the king of the known world. But He'll make you eat like an animal on all fours and be drenched by the dew of heaven on your back and grow long hair like feathers on a bird and claws like the talons of a bird. One of the greatest kings that the world has ever known was a man named Nebuchadnezzar who just happened to also come from the plain of Shinar, Babylon. And God humbled him greatly. For seven years, he lost his mind. But when he got it again, you know what he said? The last recorded words in all of the Bible by Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, do you know what they were? God abases the proud. Saints, how good would it be if we could learn that and apply it without having to live it? You'll always live it to some degree. But I don't know about you, I'd rather only have to go one round with the heavyweight champion. I don't want to have to keep getting back in to learn that lesson. Okay, so let's turn back to Genesis 14. Lot has been carried away. Lot is in serious trouble. Lot's family is being greatly affected. Just before killing an Egyptian, or one of our mighty fighting men, the one that killed the lion on a snowy day, had fought with a Moabite. You know what Moabite means? From my father. It means I'm a product of incest. You know what an Ammonite means? It's the only other way to say, from my father, a product of incest. 
Lot produced those two groups of people. He spent so much time in Sodom and Gomorrah and he raised his kids there that his daughters were wicked. They got their father drunk in a place called Zor and they slept with him and produced offspring. And those offspring became enemies of Israel all of their lives. How about that? Ammon and Moab, two sons that mean from my father. That's pretty sick, isn't it? Mandy's from Arkansas and I'm from Louisiana. But I still never met anything quite that sick. All right, Genesis 14, starting in the 13th verse. One who had escaped reported this, that Lot had been carried away. To Abram, the Hebrew. That's the first mention of the word Hebrew in the Bible. The sons of Eber, the people of God. This is written after the fact by a man named Moses in 1600 B.C., but it's written about a time period that was 2000 B.C. This is how we say it's the plain of Siddim, which is where the Dead Sea is, even though there was no Dead Sea during this day, because it happened later, and the writer is putting it in. He says, Abraham the Hebrew, because that's what they would become known as later, the people who followed God. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorites, Eshcol, and Aner whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I want you to think about this. Five kings had faced four kings on their own turf and been beaten miserably, fell in the traps of their own making. How many men does Abram have? 318, does that sound like a force to go fight four conquering kingdoms with? God has always used the remnant. He'll take 30,000, will it down to 300 that have the right heart to prove that it comes from Him and not from you. He is not interested in your abilities. He doesn't need them. He's interested in your heart. And if you get a chance to use an ability that you have, it's because He's sufficiently satisfied that it won't cause you to fall in your own pit. 318 trained men. Thank God and I have met trained men that could show me how to rescue myself from my own pride. Thank God in my life I have met trained men who would go to battle for me to rescue me from my compromises with the enemy. Thank God in my life I have met trained men who didn't rescue me every time but instead expected me to get training myself. Thank God trained me I've met. I hope you run into a few. Three hundred and trained men born in his household went and pursued as far as Dan. During the night invited his men to attack them and he routed them. So we didn't even attack with all three hundred and eighteen in one massive force. We split it up. Sound like Abraham's not all that concerned with numbers. Pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, he recovered all of the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Abraham, with 318 trained men, did what five local kingdoms with their militias were not able to do. Why? Because God was with him. He wasn't there for plunder. He wasn't there to make a great name for himself. He was just there to do God's will. And his 318 trained men, you think they were trained? 
You don't even know their names. How godly is that? If you had been one of those 318 men, would you have found a way to let your name slip out so everybody knew you had been a part of the championship team? I come from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where all of the insurance agents were great football stars. How sad is that? What does playing football have to do with an insurance? Because there's something natural in us that likes to worship heroes. In fact, these men put on their walls pictures of themselves from the 50s and the 60s in uniforms as a subtle way to convey, you should buy from me. The kingdom does just the opposite. You should be sitting next to an army and a, a soldier in the army of the Lord, but never know it by the things they say. You should see it in the things that they do. I've met older Christian women whose arthritis keeps them from walking right, who may even have handicapped stickers in their car that pray more powerfully than the 20-year-old that cannot stay awake for an hour. In my lifetime, I've watched God use people that the world would never use because they're willing and they've received His training. And the only reason you don't know about it is they don't talk about it. One of the things that I liked in one of President Bush's speeches, she said, many of our missions will be secret even in success. And I thought, oh, that is the heart of a Christian. The greatest stories that you will never know are the ones that weren't told because they were for God and God alone. Giving needs to be done in secret. Loving people, serving them, needs to be done in a way that it doesn't lift you up. It needs to be done because it's your heart to be like Jesus. Abraham set out. Look at Abraham's heart. After Abraham returned from de defeating Kedor Lamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's a beautiful story. He was the priest of God Most High. He blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed by Abram, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I want you to hear this. Where's Abraham's heart? Did he choose the best land for himself? No. Consider that Lot was subordinate to him and needed to put Lot in his place? No. He didn't consider equality something to be great. Did he need a large army to go fight these kings? No. He just wanted the ones that had been trained by God, born in his own household. Then when he achieves a great victory, he goes shout about it and want everybody to pay tribute to him? No. Instead, he gives of what he has to God. That's the heart of God. The heart of God. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Jesus got offered the treasures of the world one time too. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Yahweh El Shaddai, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Let them have their share. The thing that Lot wanted almost cost him pleasing self, and it almost cost him his very soul. But God in His mercy raised up somebody after His own heart who wanted no share of glory, who wanted nothing for himself. He just wanted to be a humble servant of God. Instead of receiving payment, he gave even more. 
of himself. This is the faith you were born into. It's called the faith of Abraham. But you are only his children if you act like Abraham. This is exactly the problem that the Jewish nation had when this came on the scene. He said, we are descendants of Abraham. God can raise them up from these rocks. You are Abraham's children if you act like Abraham. You are Christians if you act like Christ. If not, you're just confusing is what you are. For some of you, this ought to be like Abraham coming in and rescuing you from your own pit right now. For others, it ought to be an encouragement to go rescue others that you see falling into a pit. But for all of us, there ought to be a stern, stern warning. I figure I've got three minutes left and I intend to use them well. So turn with me to Luke 12. You know, in preaching, sometimes we look for ways to say things. We hope that we emphasize the right points. We hope that God's divine enableness is on us to make a message clear. But every once in a while, I come across a passage of Scripture that I said, you know, it really needs no explanation. Jesus said this about as good as it could be said. And the fact that He's addressing something that He calls a little flock, I just thought was more apropos than I could have hoped for. So I'm going to read to you Luke 12, 16-34, and then we close. And He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I guess giving it away never occurred to him. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. If used in the wrong context, this can be like a curse word. You fool, you godless heathen. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will He clothe you? Listen to this line, saints. O you of little trust. Selfishness is in its heart a lack of trust in God. Recognize it in the smallest area of your lives and kill it. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, 
Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your Father knows, your Father knows that you need them. But seek the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid, life-changing ministries, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Stand to your feet.